Well, we have been in John for quite a while, but uh, with the, uh, the camping trip for many in our church, uh, I don't know, I, I, I thought that so many went. Did anybody go on that and manage to get back this morning? Because it still seems like those, it's pretty full. Same thing happened in Surrey, actually. Uh, so maybe you all wised up and decided not to go and sleep in a cold, miserable tent. Um, so I did take a break this week because of the camping trip that so many allegedly went on and um, thought it would be a good time to, to, to maybe preach a, a different sermon. Then we'll pick back up in John chapter 20 next week when we look at Mary's um, meeting Christ at the empty tomb. So that's kind of why we're taking a break. And uh, we did sing a new song today in the beauty of holiness. Uh, we were, I know it's new to some of you. It's actually a great Robin Mark song. And uh, ever since I became a Christian, I really loved Robin Mark's music because uh, my dad sent me this Revival in Belfast CD, which I wore out playing so much. And this was on the second CD. And for about uh, 20 years now, I have been singing this song with the wrong lyric that I found out this morning because this is the first time I've had the lyrics in front of me. So I thought the chorus said, so I pause at your gaze once more, not gates. And I had a great theology of the beatific vision and all of that. And it really made sense in light of the first verse. Uh, so we see you, son of righteousness. And I see now we posit your gates once more. It kind of has ruined things for me. So I'm in a bit of a bad mood. Um, I thought it was my mom and my dad who always was singing the wrong lyrics to songs. And now I, I've been doing it for 20 years. So um, if that makes you feel better about yourself, singing the wrong lyrics, I hope so. Uh, yeah, change it back. You know, the other guy, Steve, said the same thing, so I like my version better. Um, so that said, we're going to be in James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1, looking at verses 16 to 18, with a special uh, focus on verse 17, but I'm going to try and get us to see the context of this glorious verse for us, and we'll begin at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Well, let us ask God to bless these words as they've been read and as they will be preached. Our Father, we ask now that the words of truth, which you call the words of truth, will indeed be those words that we can rely upon, that will change us, that we can say our holy words that have been preserved for us. O oh Lord, we ask now to change us into the image of Christ by the power of his word and his spirit. Amen. One of the most lovely attributes we could say of God, and yet one of the most difficult attributes of God to believe in, I actually think happens to be the uh, goodness of God. Uh, I actually have no trouble believing in God's wrath. Uh, that may sound uh, terribly uh, strange to you, but I, I do see a lot of evidence at times of God's wrath. I, we've read of it in the psalm earlier. I could see how God would be angry even with me. 
and even some of you. And you kind of have this natural built-in tendency as a sinner to think that, you know, you should be the recipient of God's judgment. And there's something good about that, and there's something bad about that. And that would require another sermon in and of itself. But God's goodness can actually be a very difficult attribute to believe in, in the way that I think scriptures want us to believe in this attribute. Many will piously say, God is good, and and just sort of use that as a, a life mantra. But James is asking us to believe this in a very certain, and I would say, distinct context. For example, when James opens up, he begins very almost abruptly with the issue of trials. Consider it all joy when you fall into many trials of all kinds. And what are you to do as well in light of going through trials? You're to ask God for wisdom. So in verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. There's a hint of what's coming in verse 17 already in verse 5. What do we think we need wisdom for? To sit on a hill and philosophize uh, as uh, a sort of Christian Socrates to the world and say this is how one should live and this and that? Or is James speaking about wisdom in a certain context? And the answer is obvious. We're to ask for wisdom to navigate trials so that we navigate a trial with a wise spirit from God to understand that the trial is from God, it will lead to God, and the question is whether we will see God in the trial. That's wisdom. So it's not just getting smarter and, you know, you're, you're what should I do today? I'm going to ask for some wisdom, and you just say, God, give me some wisdom and then move along. That, that's not a bad thing to ask God for. But I think what James is saying is, are you going to ask God for wisdom through a trial? Then you have another issue that comes up before you get to verse 16, and that is one of, well, we shouldn't say that God is tempting us with evil, because God himself is righteous. And so we can't blame God for the situations whereby we may feel allured to evil. God cannot be tempted by evil. So there's a bit of a justification of God going on here. There's a justification of his justice and his goodness. And we have to remember in the context of trials and tribulations that we should not doubt that God is good. So that's why verse 16 actually goes quite well with verse 17. A lot of times verse 17 is abstracted as though you can just quote this verse and it sounds nice. But verse 16 is quite important and that's why I wanted to read it. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. There are people who have left the faith. There are people who have left the church. There are people who have given up their Christian public testimony. Uh, the popular word today is uh, deconstruction. They are deconstructing their faith. And as they deconstruct their faith, they come up with a host of reasons why they no longer believe in Christ and no longer go to church and so on and so forth. Now, we could say, well, that's because of sin. And we all know that at the root of all of our problems is sin, but we need to be a little more investigative than that. What you will find typically is that people who leave the faith, who give up Christianity, 
are ultimately questioning the goodness of God. That's the fundamental issue. If God really is good and He is a Father who is a good Father and you believe that with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as you're commanded to believe, why would you ever leave such a Father who is so good to you? One would leave a bad Father and understand that, but not a good Father. And so we have to reaffirm as much as we can, not just from the pulpit, but in our meditation, in our prayers, in our reading, that God is good. And James gets us right to that point. Do not be deceived, brothers. God is good. And if you wanted to be deceived, you would be deceived into thinking that God isn't good. Because that is what the serpent did in the very beginning. Did he not question that God was good? Here you are, Adam and Eve, and you have all of the trees to eat from. You have this wonderful paradise. You're living in harmony. You have dominion. You have rule. You have happiness. You have friendship with God. Ah, but God is keeping something from you. God is keeping something from you, and He doesn't want you to become like Him. And so the real issue is Adam... And Eve, is God good? And their taking of the fruit was a denial of that very principle. God is not good. If God was good, He would have allowed us to eat from this tree. And so, ever since then, man and woman, boy and girl, has been questioning or forgetting God's goodness. So when you come to verse 17, and that's a little bit of the context, James says, every good gift and every perfect gift, and this is a stylistic way of writing. It's not as though there are some gifts that are good and some that are perfect, and you say, oh, that was a good gift, and then tomorrow you say, oh, this is a perfect gift. He's saying every gift from God is both good and perfect. It's stylistic. John does this all the time. James does it. Paul does it. It's a way of writing. The more important issue is not only that these are good and perfect gifts, but where do these gifts come from? They come from above. A man can receive nothing, says John the Baptist, unless he receives it from above. For from him, says Paul, and to him and through him are all things. You cannot receive anything unless it is from above. Now, let's go back to the context of James 1. What would that include? And here's the thing that is hard for Christians to embrace and appreciate. Trials may be a good and perfect gift if they are met with wisdom, with faith, and a belief in God's goodness. So every good and every perfect gift is from above. This is something that Christians can testify to. This is something that is eminently true, not only of Christians, but even unbelievers. If God is good, He is good to all. He is goodness. God not only loves His people, He loves all people. The reason we know He loves all people is because even those who hate Him, even those who reject Him and despise Him, they are able to despise Him with the lungs that they have been given from God, from the air that has been given by God as an act of His love towards them. God is good. He allows His enemies to breathe. He allows His enemies to hate Him because He's being good to them by allowing them to live. 
And God is good because He not only gives you the basics of life, but so much more than that. Occasionally, someone comes in in a nice dress or dressed up in a nice suit, and I say, oh, don't you look nice today? And I hope that in five years with great reformation happening at Faith Church, we'll all dress even nicer than we do. And I say that without wearing a tie, so I apologize. But you, you receive gifts that go beyond the mere necessities of life. The fact that you get to laugh and smile is a gift from above. I have a secret Twitter account where it's under a different name just so I can see important news in my life. I follow like four or five things. Uh, Liverpool FC, just see how they're doing. A couple other things. And uh, I follow Faulty Towers on Twitter. Because I like to go into Twitter and in the misery of this life in which we live, it's nice to laugh a little bit. And nobody quite makes me laugh like Basil and Sybil, and Manuel, and so on and so forth. And even those gifts, things that we don't even think about, where God allows us to just laugh, is a good and perfect gift from above. My point is that not only does God take care of us in the basic necessities, He gives us so much more in things that we we rarely think about in terms of God's goodness. He allows us to laugh. He allows us to smile. He allows us to sing. He allows us to eat and drink. And He allows us to know that that is actually a gift from His hand. And that's what makes being a Christian different in terms of receiving gifts from a non-Christian is that we don't just look at the gifts, we look at the giver of the gifts and that they are from above. And that they are good and perfect gifts if they're received by faith. Now, one of the signs of godlessness and let's take a minute to say that while Christians are not in the technical term called godless, godlessness can creep into our Christian living. And one of the marks of godless living is thanklessness. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, they neither uh, honored God as God nor gave thanks to Him. That's one of the marks of the wicked. They are thankless people. They do not thank God. They receive, they receive, they receive. They don't even know necessarily they're receiving it from above and they do not give thanks. And when Christians refuse to give thanks to God for all of His good and perfect gifts, we become like the wicked. Now He's called God, that is, He's called the Father of lights. And that's an interesting phrase because it's not a common phrase in the Scriptures. He's the Father of lights. There's hints of it in uh, the Psalms and Isaiah, but the point is that He is called the Father of lights. And when you uh, read the Lord's Prayer, we begin with our Father who is in heaven. It's the most important thing you can begin with in prayer. Why? Because every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father, the Father of heavenly lights. So you immediately are calling upon your Father who is in heaven, and heaven is the place from where good gifts come. So it makes sense that Christ would open the Lord's Prayer with those words. Just as the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men from heaven. Whatever happens in this world, it's from heaven. It's from God. 
And we are told the Father of lights does not change, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here is one of the most important attributes you can connect to God's goodness. And the simplicity of God means that all that is in God is God. That is to say that if God is truly good, He must be unchangeably good. Otherwise, He's not truly good. A good God does not help you if that good God can change in His disposition towards you. In fact, that would be horrible. It would make Him evil and it would make our lives unbearable to know that God was good to me last week, but next week He may not be. Such terror would cripple us in our Christian living. You must not only believe that God is good, but that He is unchangeably good. And that is why James says this. He doesn't think it's enough for us to say, ah, the Father of heavenly lights who gives us all these good and perfect gifts, but maybe He won't tomorrow. Maybe He won't next week. Maybe He won't next year. Maybe ten years from now. I don't know how He's going to feel towards me. He establishes that God does not change. And there's a little bit of a interpretive difficulty here because he's the father of lights with whom there is no variation. So why is he called the father of lights in regards to unchangeability? If we were to be overly scientific with the text, we could say, well, the sun is always changing. We could say the stars are always changing as they're burning out and you could make a whole scientific case for the fact that the lights are changing. So if he's the father of lights, is he perhaps the father of things that change and he therefore changes? Well, if you go to the text looking for a scientific explanation that would have to pass a course at MIT, perhaps you would have to come to that conclusion. But James isn't really suggesting that. James is probably suggesting that from a certain human perspective, when you look at the sun, as far as I can tell from when I was a child to when now, and it's a clear day, the sun looks the same. It feels the same. It's warm. It doesn't shoot down snowballs at me one day and uh, rain the next and then rays of light the other day. There's a sense in which the sun is almost unchangeable from a very limited human perspective. And the stars, if you don't live in a big city and so you don't have the lights take away the glory of the stars, you can go out to the Sahara Desert or wherever it may be and you look up and you see the stars, it's as though they would be there every single night. And so the point is that God is the Father of what appears to be these unchanging lights. They are always there. The sun is always there. The lights are always there. How much more so the God who created them in His unchangeability. And there is therefore no variation or shadow due to change. Now, if this is true, that God gives these good gifts, what would be the greatest evidence of His good gifts? And verse 18 then follows in a very natural way. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. This is perhaps the outstanding example of God's good and perfect gifts. When Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and He says, you must be born again. The, the Greek word anophen, when He says this in John 3, actually is a bit ambiguous. It can mean you must be born from above or you must be born again. It basically amounts to the same thing. So those who are born above believers or born again believers 
What is it that enables you to see the kingdom of heaven? It is that you have been born from above. You received a gift from above that enables you to even see the realities of the kingdom. That's the most fundamental change that must take place in any believer. You are born from above. You've received the greatest gift from above. That's the new life in Christ. So James, naturally, in verse 18, says, of his own will... No, I think he's plagiarizing John here because John says in chapter 1, verse 12 of his Gospel, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. He links it with God as Father, but then says after that, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, but born of God. What is the greatest gift you can receive in terms of the application of salvation is that you've given new life. You're a new creation. That you've been brought out of darkness into light. That you are born from above. That you've received the Spirit and that you can now see and believe and taste that the Lord is good. So, James is very careful in the way in which he's establishing this point of God giving us good gifts. And if you don't read the first 16 verses before verse 17, you're going to lose some of the force of what is being said in verse 17. And then verse 18 would be a natural conclusion as to how we can know that God gives us good gifts. Now, just as we wrap this up in terms of application, I do want to make one point. And maybe frame it in a question. If you could go to any time in world history Any time in world history, however many thousands of years ago you need to go and say, I'd like to be here to see God's goodness, where would you go? And maybe you quickly think, ah, you know, I've been reading Genesis 1 lately and I just love that refrain, and it was good, and it was good, and you know, it gets to the point where he creates the woman as well as the man, and then God says, it's very good which, there you go, women, uh, it wasn't until you came along that everything was very good. Oh, come on, you should be smiling more than that. So, you go to Eden, and you see this temple paradise, where animals are in subjection, where the glory of God is everywhere to be seen, where the natural instincts of Adam and Eve is to worship their Creator and walk with Him and have friendship with God. And that would be the second best answer, perhaps. But the goodness of God and the goodness of God for you is nowhere better displayed than at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's very important you understand this. Because if God wanted to show His goodness in the greatest way, what would He do? And the answer is very simple. He gives us the very best that He can offer. And creating Eden, creating Eden is is like child's play for God in terms of His goodness. It cost Him nothing. It was just an act of His power and wisdom and, and grace and goodness and so on and so forth. But in the giving of His Son, it cost Him His life. That is to say, He sent His Son born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might become children of God and that meant that His own child would have to die 
on a cross to show God's goodness. And Stephen Charnock has this wonderful section in his his book on the existence and attributes of God. I'm not going to tell you which page it is. You should begin at page one and read to the end, and it's somewhere in between. I was at the York's house the other night, and I saw the two volumes, those glorious volumes, the the recent ones, of course, and um, hadn't been touched, I I think, hadn't been touched, but they look very nice. And uh, I trust, uh, Monica said after the sermon, she said, great, I've got to go home now and read two volumes of Charnock. But there's a point in the section on the goodness of God where Charnock makes this point that God shows his goodness to us not only in the giving of his son, but God's goodness to us was for a time a greater goodness shown to us than even his own son. That when Christ was crying out in the darkness of the horror and miseries of the cross, he was showing a greater goodness to us sinners than to his own son at that time. And it's important you understand that because, well, I had a text from a friend of mine, a minister, and it was, I think, last week, and he, he phoned and I texted back. I says, hey, can I call you later tonight? And he says, yeah, no problem. And I did what I typically do. I forgot. Life comes at you fast. Uh, your children want to go for a Slurpee and uh, you give in. And um, I don't, that didn't really happen, but that could happen very easily. And I forgot. And then a few days ago, he phoned. And I thought, oh, you know when you see that name come up and you're like, I was supposed to phone you. So I answer. Say, hey, how, how's it going? Uh, I'm kind of busy right now, but I'm definitely going to phone you back. And uh, so I did. So, so how are things going? He's like, well, I'm sitting in a hospital. Been here all week. I was like, oh no, you contacted me when you're in hospital and I forgot to get back to you. So I was uh, not feeling so great. And um, it really struck me because I was preparing this sermon and he says, yeah, I came in, I had really bad pain and they did a scan behind my lungs. There was a big mass and uh, at first the doctor says, hey, this this looks like cancer. You go in to the hospital, you've been living your life, you've had a bit of pain, and, you, and then you find out the doctor says that. And he's young. And then as the tests go on, days and days, he has to stay in the hospital, finds out it could be actually something else, and this, and the, lots of blood tests, and they have to do a biopsy, and he can't get the results of the biopsy, and the biopsy doesn't always work, as you know, some of you. And... I said to him, you know, this is where we actually have to believe that God is good. We've sat and drank wine before, me and this gentleman. And we believe God is good. And the wine was good. Because God is good and He gave us good wine. And that's easy to believe. And we smile and we say, see you next year, brother, and so on and so forth. But what are you to do when you're actually in the hospital? And you've got to believe God is good. And that He's powerfully good so that He can affect the good in your life. He's not just a good God who's a bystander going, listen, I wish I could help, but there's nothing I can do. As doctors sometimes have to say. God never has to say that. He says, I am good and I will show my goodness in a certain way. You will need to ask for wisdom to navigate this. You will need to ask for faith in order to believe this. But 
James doesn't write these words for you on a sunny day on the beach of Mexico with your pina colada, though it may be true. He writes these words for you in a context where it is going to take everything in your soul to believe them. Now what does one do? One has to then go immediately to the cross. And if you believe that God showed you the maximum amount, if we may put it that way, of goodness that He could possibly show towards you in the giving up of His only Son to the horrors of the cross, then you can believe that everything else in your life that you receive from God is likewise a reflection of that goodness. But if you don't believe that the pinnacle of the goodness you've received from cross is from Christ is found at the cross, then you are going to struggle in that hospital room. You are going to struggle at your desk at work. You are going to struggle when meeting your spouse's family or wherever else you may question God's goodness. But if you really believe that God was eminently and principally and majestically good to you through Jesus Christ at the cross, then and only then will you be able to say, God is good in every other thing He gives to me in my life. And that's why the cross has to be central. Because it's the cross where you find the pinnacle of our faith reaching in order to then believe everything else about God that is true. And so nowhere do you see the goodness of God more clearly and vividly than in the cross of Christ. And then and only then can you read James 1.17 and say, every good and perfect gift, especially the gift of His Son, is from above. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank You for Your words and pray that they may not be hollow, empty words because we receive them with a dead faith. That they may be full and lively words that sort our souls out, as it were, because we believe them to be true. And we believe them to be true because we believe Christ to be the One who came and lived and died and rose again and showed us the goodness of God in a way that no creature or angel could ever show us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.